in the courtroom. A man who professed to be a Christian tried to explain away his responsibility for breaking the law. And in his attempt, he got an interesting response from the judge. He said to the judge, Your Honor, as a believer in Christ, I am a new man. But I still have an old nature. And it was the old man that committed the crime. The judge replied, Well, since it was the old man who broke the law, we'll sentence him to 30 days in jail. And since the new man was his accomplice, we'll give him 30 days as well. I therefore sentence you to 60 days in jail. If the Apostle John would have been a a judge back in his day, that might have been a sentence he would have handed down to the Gnostics and their followers. If you remember, the Gnostics believed that the human spirit, their inner being, was sinless and separate from their physical bodies. And therefore, they claimed their human spirit could be in full fellowship with God while at the same time, their physical bodies lived like the devil. That false teaching made absolutely no sense to John. Especially when considering the nature of God described in one single word. God is light. As I mentioned last week, this expression of light tells us that God is all good with nothing bad. He is all pure with nothing corrupt. He is all clean, with nothing dirty. He is all right, with nothing wrong. And He is all truth, with nothing false. God has revealed Himself in the flesh. And in this revelation... In this light, He makes known His righteousness and His holiness, His goodness and His purity. He makes it known to us. In this light, God brightly shines and makes visible in the person of Jesus Christ His moral perfection. And because He is light, there is no darkness in Him at all. No sin, no falsehood, no ignorance, no error 
and no evil. Period. So because God is light, His followers are to walk in the light. Meaning, our life, our lifestyle should be characterized as walking with God. Now, if you recall from last week, we looked at verses 5 through 10 of the first chapter. And I want to read them again just for the sake of context. John tells us, This is the message we have heard from Him, from Jesus, and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. In that passage, John shed some light on the nature of man. Explaining to Christians that just because they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they still have a fallen, sinful nature. Yes, it is true. We are no longer slaves to it. We are no longer under its dominion and its control. In fact... The Apostle Paul tells us that our fallen nature has been crucified. It's dead. But, like a chicken with its head chopped off that continues to flop around for a while, our fallen nature continues to flop around in our lives, still trying to influence us. For example, you know you should forgive someone. I'm not meddling, just an example. You know you should forgive someone. The Bible is clear about it. And you know that's what the Holy Spirit is convicting you to do. But you also hear a whisper from your old nature that tells you, 
I wouldn't forgive that person. Look what they did to you. They don't deserve your forgiveness. They don't care about you. So don't do it. That's an example of the kind of spiritual struggle I am talking about with our fallen nature. Again, not meddling, just an example. For those in Christ, sin is no longer our master. We don't have to give in to its temptations. But be that may, our fallen sinful nature continues to flop around in our lives. Instead of dead men walking, it's dead chicken flopping. And we still struggle against it. And on those occasions where we do sin, we are to confess it. We can be honest with God about our sin because we are forgiven by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now on the heels of all of that, we are picking up where we left off with this same train of thought about sin. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 2. And we will read the first two verses. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Should be on the board behind me. Thank you. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John, who's now an old man, probably in his 90s, begins with the words, my little children. Which literally means, little born ones. And that tells us a couple of things. First, we know that he is writing to fellow believers. All that stuff he said about sin is for us. He's not writing to those other people about their sin problem. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to us. And secondly, 
He has a fond affection for them. They're his little children. His spiritual children, so to speak. Now, from what John has already said in his letter to Christians, he has made it clear, very clear, that sin is still a reality for a believer, right? There is continual cleansing for our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet he says here, I am writing these things to you so that, so that is a purpose statement, so that you may not sin. In other words... Just because we struggle against sin, and just because we have forgiveness of sin, does not mean we have a license to sin. God's desire is that we may not sin. That's the goal. That's the standard that has been set for us as believers. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have victory over sin. But, if there are those moments where we do sin... And John has already told us there will be those moments we have a personal advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. So what does John mean when he calls Jesus our advocate? Well, that word advocate is from the Greek word paraclete. Not parakeet as in a bird, okay? But paraclete. And it refers to someone who comes alongside. Someone who comes alongside to provide help or counsel to another. And in the context here, and context is really important, in the context here, this advocate would best be described as a defense attorney. Okay? A defense attorney. We could say that Jesus is our lawyer. He's our defense attorney. And seeing him in that kind of role presents to us an image of a courtroom setting. And that brings to mind, at least to me, a legal matter. A legal matter that is often missed when it comes to our relationship with God. Beginning at salvation. When we think about salvation... We tend to think of it under the umbrella of God's love 
and grace and mercy and His forgiveness. I mean, that's what John 3.16 is all about. That's what we tend to think about. That's what we want to think about. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a legal matter to consider. It's a matter of justice. Justice. And like a strong, unseen undertow, it cannot be escaped. God is holy and just. And because He is holy and just, He cannot... He cannot turn a blind's eye to sin. can't do it. He cannot make a holy law, establish a penalty, and then not follow through when the law is broken. God has to uphold His holy law. He has to punish sin. It's a matter of justice. Yes, it is true that God is loving and He's merciful and He's forgiving. But at the same time, He is also just. Now that might seem somewhat contradictory to us. But it's not to God. Listen to how God described Himself to Moses. This is God describing Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. Is it up? We are told. <clears throat> then the Lord passed by in front of Him, in front of Moses. And proclaimed, this is God speaking, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It was going so well until he used that little three-letter word, yet. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Later we are told in Numbers Chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But, another three-letter word, but He will by no means clear the guilty. So yes, God is loving, and yes, God is merciful, and yes, He is forgiving. But when it comes to sin, there is this legal matter that must be satisfied. It's a matter of justice. And the guilty will not go unpunished. Because God is just, 
hear me. Because God is just. Every sin ever committed by every person. I miss anybody. Every sin ever committed by every person will be punished. As believers, when we fall into sin, and I did not say if, I said when, we are told that Jesus, our advocate, pleads on our behalf before the throne of God. And although we are not told here, there's also a prosecutor. It's Satan. Our accuser. And he has plenty of evidence against us. We just hand it to him. Now in a typical courtroom setting, the prosecutor makes their case to support their charges against the accused, right? So Perry Mason does. He was a defense attorney, excuse me. While the defense attorney argues for their innocence. In this legal proceeding, the defense attorney might challenge the evidence and the witnesses being presented against the accused. They might do that. The attorney may bring into question the methods that were used to bring forth the charges. The attorney might offer excuses for the actions of the accused or maybe provide some legal justification for their behavior or go so far as to suggest their behavior was actually right, even though the law said it was wrong. Warranting the need for some special exception to the law. That's what we typically see of defense attorneys in our courtroom settings. But this isn't so for Jesus. As our advocate, before the accuser and the judge... Jesus admits our guilt. All of it. He has to. He can't say, Your Honor, my client is not guilty. For that would be an outright lie. And he can't make a defense based on our own righteousness. For it's already recorded in the transcript that there are none who are righteous, no, not one. So when we sin, Jesus speaks on our behalf and enters a guilty plea. And then he argues for our pardon. And maybe it goes like this. 
Father, as you know, this one belongs to me. We both know he has sinned against us. But I took his place. I paid the debt he owed. And my righteousness was applied to his account when he believed. I exchanged my righteousness for his wickedness. I exchanged it. With my own blood, I took the full wrath and punishment from this court that he deserves. I took it. And therefore, there is now no debt left to be paid. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, He is our advocate. But He's much more than that. John will explain in verse 2, and he says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only, and not our, for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So here we are given the reason why Jesus can serve as our advocate. In this verse, John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is not a word we use in our vocabulary. I've never heard anybody just normally say the word propitiation. So what in the world does it mean? <clears throat> in the Greek, the word is helosmos. And it means to appease. To appease or to satisfy an offended party. To appease or to satisfy an offended party. It's a word that is used to describe an offering given by a guilty person to someone they have offended. That's what it means. An offering given by a guilty person to someone they have offended. A pastor tells the story of going home with a member of his church who had tucked under one arm a gift-wrapped box and in his other hand a bunch of flowers. Both of those, those things seemed out of place with this man's character. So the pastor asked him, what's up with the flowers and the gift? And with a grim look on the man's face, he replied, those are to propitiate the wife. In that context, I guess that's a good example of propitiation. This man knew he had offended his wife and brought something to hopefully appease her. 
But when it comes to Jesus, He does not bring an offering. He is the offering. He Himself is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice that satisfies God. Jesus is the sacrifice who absorbs the wrath of God so that sinful man can be reconciled to a holy and just God who must punish sin. I was thinking about this. This this convergence of love and justice. And I thought about another passage. A passage that should be familiar to you. Turn with me to John. This is the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 14. This is Jesus talking, okay? And He says... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, That He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world And men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. In this passage, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. He's talking with Nicodemus. And Jesus makes reference to a story from the Old Testament. A story that Nicodemus would be familiar with. Okay? In this story, found in Numbers chapter 21, we're not going to go there, we're told the Israelites were out in the desert dying. They were dying because they had been bitten by poisonous snakes. 
which was part of God's punishment for their rebellion against Him. Well, after many people died, they plead with Moses to pray that God would take away the snakes. So Moses interceded for the people and God told him to make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, lift it high for everyone to see, and for those people who believed, all they had to do was simply look at this bronze snake on a pole and they would be healed from their snake bites. That's all they had to do. Just look up. And so with that story as a backdrop, that's the setting, that's the backdrop, Jesus then tells Nicodemus that much like the bronze snake that was lifted up on a pole to bring physical life to those who were bitten, the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that everyone who looks to Him will have eternal life. Here Jesus spoke of the cross that was awaiting Him. He knew it was coming. Where in one defining moment in history, this is wild, In one moment in history, we see both God's love and God's justice come together on a cross. And Jesus himself would be the propitiation, the offering for the sins of the world. Meaning that for those who believe, For those who enter into a relationship with Jesus, His sacrifice would turn away the wrath of God on their behalf. That's the picture that John 3.16 paints for us. It illustrates the greatest love, the greatest gift, the greatest rescue, and the greatest promise. But if we continue on to verse 18, a verse we are not that familiar with, we are also presented with the greatest contrast. We're told, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God did not send Jesus into the world to bring judgment. But at the same time, judgment is coming nonetheless. God's wrath over sin will be completely satisfied one way or another. 
It's a matter of justice for him. And for those who do not believe, for those who reject Jesus Christ, for those who refuse a salvation that is freely offered to them, then by default, hear me, by default, they have chosen condemnation for themselves. And whether they know it or not, they are just waiting for their sentence to be carried out. And it's a hellfire and brimstone kind of sentence. That's what Jesus is talking about here. For those who reject Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they will have no advocate to plead their case. And they will have to pay the full price for each and every sin they have ever committed to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, for those who believe, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, there is no judgment. And there is no condemnation because Jesus has taken our punishment for sin upon Himself. On the cross, Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for those who believe. So when we sin, and we will sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case. There was a soldier in the Union Army, a young man who had lost his older brother and father in the war. He went to Washington, D.C. to see President Abraham Lincoln to ask for an exemption from military service so he could go back and help his sister and mother with the spring planting on the farm. When he arrived in Washington, after having received a furlough from the military to go and plead his case, he went to the White House, approached the doors, and asked to see the President. He was told, You can't see the president. Don't you know there's a war on? The president's a very busy man. Now go away, son. Get back in there and fight. Go back and fight the rebels. Like you're supposed to. So he left. Very discouraged and was sitting on a park bench not far from the White House. When a young boy came up to him. The boy said, soldier, you look unhappy. What's wrong? The soldier looked at this young boy and began to spill his heart out about his situation. About his father and his brother having died in the war. And how he was the only male left in the family and was needed desperately back at the farm for the spring planting. Well, the young boy took the soldier by the hand 
and led him around to the back of the White House. They went through the back door, past the guards, past all the generals and the high-ranking government officials until they got to the president's office itself. The young boy didn't even knock on the door, but just opened it and walked in. There was President Lincoln with his Secretary of State looking over war plans on the desk. President Lincoln looked up and said, What can I do for you, Todd? Todd said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And right then and there, the soldier had a chance to plead his case before President Lincoln. And he was exempted from military service due to the hardship he was under. We all need an advocate. And for those in Christ, we have one. One who not only knows the judge, but actually calls him father. Even now, Jesus pleads our case. And he's the only one who can. For he's the only one who made himself an offering for our sins. On the cross, a symbol of God's love and justice converging together at the same time, Jesus took our death sentence to satisfy the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to Him in love. Jesus is our advocate. And oh, by the way, He has never lost a case. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your words. These were hard words, but they were true words. I can't get the the, the picture out of my mind, Lord. The cross, where love and justice meet for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to a cross for us. Even though we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is our advocate. And that he is the offering for our sins. Thank you for the sacrifice you made and he made. Father, if we ever doubt your love, help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to you. May you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the Bible is very clear.
God will punish sin. I don't think any of us can escape that. That truth. He will satisfy his wrath. He will punish sin. But the question is, and it's a simple question, how? How? That is the question. How will he punish sin? How will he satisfy his wrath? Really, there's only two options. For those who reject Jesus Christ, it is on them. It will be on them. Each and every sin ever committed will be judged against them. It's a terrible thought. I'm not one of those hellfire brimstone kind of preachers. But it's the absolute truth. I can't deny that. For those who refuse this free offer of salvation, for those who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will have to incur God's wrath upon themselves. The terrible thought. But for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Jesus is your offering for sin. He's taken your sin upon Himself. He has exchanged our sin for His righteousness. It's a grand exchange. For those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, He took all of your punishment on the cross. And that's why John could say, we are forgiven. And it's a continual forgiveness. That's good news. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then what you heard this morning is bad news for you. I can't say it any other way. It's terrible news. You can't leave here with a smile on your face. It's terrible news. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I would love to introduce you to Him. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Love to have you here. Or maybe there's something else you need that you need prayer about. I would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. However the Lord moves you, I just pray you be obedient to Him and just respond as He leads you. Uh, let me uh, close in prayer. I know they're doing some barbecue out there because I'm smelling it. 
Uh, but let me close in prayer. I want to pray for our, our offering this morning. Just remind you, our baskets are, are back there if you feel led to give. And then also I want to pray for our fellowship. And I hope you do stay. Father, I thank you so much for drawing us here together. And Lord God, I pray in the process that we have, we've come closer to you. And Father, I just, uh, I just want to express gratitude for who you are and what you have done through your Son in our behalf. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, for your, your grace and your mercy and your patience and your forgiveness. Thank you for your compassion upon us. Your good, good Father. Thank you. Lord, uh, as we uh, take our, our offering this morning, Lord, I, I do pray that you would bless the gift and the giver. Father, help us to be generous givers and, and joyful givers, uh, more, most of all. And Father, pray as that you would help us as a church to, to faithfully and uh, to uh, accurately use your money uh, in the way that you see fit. Give us wisdom and insight, Lord God, in that. And Father, for our fellowship, Father, I pray that you bless the food, that you bless those who brought food and prepared food. Lord God, I just pray to be uh, used for nourishing our body. Pray for our fellowship, Lord God, that it will be meaningful and that true connections will be made with other people. May you be honored and glorified. I thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.